Hello, and welcome to the Grumpy Economist podcast from the Hoover Institution. I'm your host, Troy Sinek, and the Grumpy Economist is John Cochran, the Rosemary and Jack Anderson Senior Fellow at the Hoover Institution and the proprietor of the Grumpy Economist blog. And John, I want to build today off of a, a recent post of yours over at the blog, a really interesting piece of analysis about how the COVID fallout is going to affect American higher education. And I actually want to start with something that wasn't explicitly in the piece, but I think would be a good table setter for this, namely the status quo ante in higher ed, because there have been a number of people in recent years, some of this comes from the political right, some of it comes from sort of Silicon Valley techno enthusiasts, precincts, who make the argument that the ossification in American higher education was reaching kind of an inflection point, that the value proposition of higher ed was getting so dicey that while the elite universities were probably going to be all right, there was a bloodletting coming that was really going to shake up the rest of this industry. And so those types might look at the straits that colleges are in now with the coronavirus and say, well, yeah, but you had a dying model before. This has just kind of exposed and accelerated the underlying problems. How much sympathy do you have for that point of view? Um, yeah, great, great sympathy. You know, we, we're in a business like anyone else is in a business, and that business is changing. I think some of the problems just dem- demographic. Uh, there are uh, less 18-year-olds around a relative population than there were. Um, some is the change in the nature of things. So it goes... Students don't want to go to small liberal arts colleges out in the countryside anymore. They want to live in the big city. That was really hurting the small liberal arts colleges. Um, a lot of universities went to a model of foreign students, which was great until we stopped liking foreigners in this country. Um, and I think your points about the nature of the product are, are well taken. Um, elite universities uh, are, are there in some, you know, what do they do? Uh, what do students actually learn outside of the science courses is a good question. They do become sort of the elite in a very old British boarding school way, and that's just a fact of life. That most of the Supreme Court went to Yale Law School, um, but um, the actual product, uh, the the humanities and much of the social sciences, went off to the loony left, at least from my point of view, and 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 has seen catastrophic falls in enrollments as a result of that. Um, so just what is this product? How viable is that product? How much the actual learning compared to the social part of it? Um, what do you still get out of the social part of it if you're not admitted to the, um, you know, the halls of Stanford, Harvard, and the rest of it? Those are all good questions. Now, there was the prediction that online would come and drive everything out, and I even spent a lot of time making an online class. That kind of came and fizzled. We, we keep forecasting the decline of these things uh, all the time. I, I started joined a business school in 1994, and everyone said, "Well, the MBA degree is toast. No one will want that anymore." And and you know they're they're still chugging along there. Uh, so I think there's big questions in the general model of higher ed, uh, and uh, some parts are going to have real trouble. Um, and forecasting everything is hard, especially the future. <laughs> All right, so let's talk about some of these specific stresses that this situation is is putting on this model. I'll, I'll start with um, just 
a practical logistical one. The specific problem on college campuses, it makes intuitive sense, I'm sure, to most of our listeners that any business or institution whose model is reliant on getting a bunch of people together in relatively confined spaces has a problem navigating the world of COVID-19. Now, with higher education, the first place one's mind jumps to, in the abstract anyway, is the classrooms. But you made a very interesting point at the Grumpy Economist. You said the classrooms really actually probably are not the biggest problem. Explain this. Yeah, let me back up just a second. We tend to lump higher education in one thing, and right. it is, of course, a tremendously varied industry. It's not all Harvard, Yale, Princeton, Stanford. Uh, there's community colleges. There's small liberal arts colleges. There's state universities. There's all sorts of each of which is facing a different set of challenges. Now, now I'll answer your question. Yeah, um, the uh, uh, problem is that it's uh, universities like a little city, really. Um, so classes come to mind. Oh my God, people got to go, go together. The evidence I've seen is that classes are really not the problem. I did a post on super spreaders a while ago, summarizing some evidence I'd seen that, uh, you know, you look at these big events where people uh, spread a lot of the virus and not one of them is a classroom, uh, which you would have thought would be, um, a problem. Uh, the, the real problem is in the residential, uh, uh, part where students, uh, it's just designed, you know, people, they, they share rooms, they share kitchens, they go to halls together, and of course they party, they party hardy. Um, and uh, some schools more than others, um, I think I, I used the word a loosely supervised alcohol-fueled bacchanalia. <laughs> Uh, proud of that is the center of campus uh, experience in a lot of places, and uh, boy, is that going to be hard to uh, to tamp down. Now that is, uh, you know, this isn't this. Uh, Mitch Daniels since then came up with a nice. Uh, uh, he was quoted in the paper, but here's how he's going to do it at Purdue uh, to try to keep um, to try to let student uh, classes open with some amount of social distancing. Some of which was throwing up your hands and saying, "Well, these kids are all young, so what if they'll get it?" That that's not. Quote, but <laughs> uh, you can see the problems of uh, how do you try. To, what we're all trying to do is to reopen businesses in a way that respects uh, social distancing, slowing down the spread of the disease. Uh, and that's really hard to do in um, the typical animal house environment of a undergraduate institution. I want to talk actually about that distinction that you made at the start of that answer. So you've got private universities, you've got public universities, you've got community college. There's obviously some overlap between those different kinds of institutions in terms of how this affects them, but but walk us through some of the contrasts and what they're up against and how they're likely to respond. Um, well, uh, first of all, there's the contrasts in their business models. How difficult is this for them to deal with? Uh, so if you're uh, dependent on tuition from out-of-state um, out-of-state students and uh, from foreigners, if those students can take a quarter off and go get credits at a community college, uh, you know, that you're going to be in real trouble, um, and especially if you're not so selective so that you're pretty much letting anybody who wants to come. And those, those universities are in real trouble. 
Uh, also, universities, a lot of universities get their money from running a hospital. Uh, we would have thought that this would be great times for hospitals, but in fact, this is turning into a terrible time for hospitals <laughs> because a lot of the people who get COVID-19 um, don't, don't have insurance and everything else is being uh, postponed or delayed. So that the nature of the uh, challenge, uh, of the financial challenge is different and the nature of, of what they do. I, I did read one thing from a uh, president of a community college who said, you know, this might be great for us because we're not residential. We don't run dorms. People tend to stay at home. We're going to get all those students who aren't going to say Berkeley, but instead going to take some courses at uh, at their local uh, um, uh, at their local uh, Cal State or, or community college instead. And uh, because we're non-residential, um, uh, you know, we, we can run classes in a safe way or Zoom anyway. Uh, a little known feature is that undergraduates don't show up to class a whole lot anyway. Um, <laughs> uh, my uh, my colleague uh, David Romer at Berkeley once wrote about this a while ago, and, and his 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 rough numbers were that sixty percent attendance at Berkeley in economics was a good score. <laughs> <laughs> so, if we're looking at this kind of buffet of hardships ahead for some of these schools, anyway, I mean, you've heard stories about budget cuts and hiring freezes and salary freezes and, and reductions, and you mentioned in the post you added this to the Grumpy Economist. This is a quote. One might say that universities have an overbloated staff and a lot of dead wood, so this might not be a terrible thing, close quote. But as the conditional language in that sentence implies, <laughs> you don't actually think that that's the most accurate prediction of what's going to go on here. Walk us through why that is. Yeah, so back to your uh, initial um point about the, the 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 crisis really in the American university that that the it has become horrendously overbloated with staff who are form interdepartmental committees to evaluate this, that, and the other thing. Um, so uh, there, there is this cleansing recession view that um, in especially non-competitive businesses where a lot of bloat can creep up, uh, an occasional crisis is a, a good thing not to waste because you can get rid of that. And I have uh, I have heard that opinion from some I heard that opinion from some administrators in uh, the last crisis. But of course, that means you have to have uh, the will and desire to do it, not just the excuse to do it. Um, and it's not clear that the 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 institution that let all of this um, immense waste accrete in the first place is going to be uh, of a mind uh, to fire all those uh, various uh, staff positions for this, that, and the other thing uh, in order to save some money in order uh, to go after the great new researchers of the future. Of course, Everybody in every university says, what do you need? You need more people like me. Uh, I think you need more great, great researchers. Well, I don't know if I'm great, but I think you need more researchers and faculty. Uh, the staff people all think you need more staff. Um, <laughs> so we're all screaming. We'll, we'll see if the will to cleanse actually is there uh, in, uh, this time around, see exactly where they do cut. Even before the crisis, there was this kind of lowly simmering populist anger out there over the past few years at elite universities sitting on these huge endowments. And so you run into a crisis like this and people say, well, what's all this money there for if you're not going to use it for a rainy day like this one? So Stanford, where you are, $30 billion endowment, Harvard, $40 million endowment. 
And uh, as you observed in your post on this, not only is this potentially keep the lights on money, this is build a competitive advantage money. Because at a time when this market is roiled, you could conceivably sweep in and, and scoop up the best talent from other schools, be that much better on the other end of this. So this is the popular conception of how the endowments are supposed to work. How does it square with the reality? Well, it's not just the the, um, the peasants with the pitchforks who feel this way. <laughs> the unanimous feeling of everyone I've talked to who uh, is uh, who works in the um, in the finance departments of every business school on the faculty and uh, of universities and most of the economists too, uh, who look at the endowments and just scratch their heads uh, about how why in the world are we doing stuff this way. Um, so, uh, you know, let's just start with uh, universities are having salary cuts and pay cuts and, and hiring freezes and building freezes and and things like that in the face of the um, current problem. Now, lots of businesses, you know, the airlines are having hiring freezes, too, but they're out of money. Uh, so wouldn't every business in the country, wouldn't wouldn't it be lovely if you were sitting on six years of revenue uh, in a big pot of money? <laughs> you'd, you'd be happy as a clam right now. And that's the situation of these universities. And, and yet, no, we're, we're not. The, uh, and now there's the various legal and structural institutional reasons. Um, but it is, I, I, I'm a little outraged by it, too. In part, there's, there's lots to be outraged about the way endowments are run. Uh, on the immediate financial crunch, uh, I'm outraged all over the place that we are, are we are replaying 2008 as if it never happened. Uh, in 2008, all the major universities had a huge financial crisis. Their endowments uh, fell. They discovered that their endowments were all invested in illiquid stuff that they couldn't sell even if they wanted to. They had all sorts of restrictions against selling it. So I think Harvard was the most extreme. It, it used to have $45 billion in uh, 2008. Uh, they had a hiring freeze and they were firing uh, people right and left. How do you have $45 billion and you're firing people and not hiring any new faculty this year? Uh, I mean, just how does that square? Well, it was all tied up in illiqu illiquid venture capital investments that couldn't be sold. And then there was a whole swap contract deal and, uh, and various things. Now, you would have thought, having been cut so short, uh, Stanford had the same thing too. Stanford had hiring freezes and lost a lot of money and couldn't couldn't access this endowment even if it wanted to. Uh, you would have thought this would have gotten cleaned up, but uh, like the rest of America, nope, we're right back to exactly where we were, as if it hadn't just happened 12 years ago. Uh, and and I think there's some reason for a little bit of uh, of outrage on that. Well, you know, you've made this argument in some of our recent podcasts about other fields, too, that they basically, it seems like they didn't learn anything from 2008. And I'm curious to what you attribute that. How much of this is bad leadership? How much of it is bad public policy? How much of it is the intersection of the two? Well, I'm, a, uh, I'm an economist, so I am forced always, where everybody else wants to see a morality story and, and idiocy, <laughs> uh, I am forced to think of incentives. And the fact that uh, all of our universities went right back to playing the game they were playing all along, uh, if you either that's, uh, you know, either the market is right and it's our job to figure out why, uh, or uh, there's a set of, of bad incentives going on here. Uh, certainly what the universities did. Um, if you ask a finance professor, how do you run an endowment? They would say you hire 
uh, one person half time to invest it in the Vanguard total market portfolio. Uh, and when, you, uh, when you're in trouble, you sell some stock and you use it as, as a buffer as well. Uh, endowments are all, they have multiple levels of management. They pay fees on top of fees on top of fees to invest it in uh, venture capital and private equity and, and real estate, things which you, they're, they're illiquid. You can't sell them if you need to. You don't know how much they're worth. And people are trying, charging hundreds of millions of dollars of fees to do this for you. Um, everyone wants to play hedge fund, apparently. Um, now, I, I, I think, uh, uh, since everyone's doing it, that must be the result of some institutional incentives, not not just uh, silliness. Though um, uh, we, we do uh, when 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 they occasionally no no one ever talks to the finance professors. Uh, we're generally not allowed to get anybody. <laughs> this is actually a, a secret nobody knows. Uh, most of these schools, Chicago, when I was there, had a spectacular finance faculty, which was not allowed to get anywhere near the endowment. Uh, same at Stanford, uh, they don't want the faculty. They don't even let the faculty know. Uh, there's a faculty committee that's supposed to look at it. They're not allowed to look at the books. Uh, they, they keep academic advice as far away from this as humanly possible. Um, so, uh, you know, that's kind of the game everyone plays. Well, you know, in contemporary America, um, load up on debt. And if you get in trouble, the federal government's going to bail you out. Uh, seems to be uh, the reason everybody else is loaded up on debt. Um, load up on debt, uh, you know, load up on this illiquid stuff, play hedge fund. And when the trouble comes, you're going to be able to just, uh, um, you know, uh, slash salaries. And uh, that, that, that this doesn't, this was not, I guess, perceived as quite the disaster um, that, that it seemed to be in 2008. Or they wouldn't be doing it all over again. Final question that I'll put to you, three, four months from now, uh, wherever it lands, depending on your institution and the calendar for the, the fall semester to get started in earnest, what does American higher education look like? How, how close of an approximation of pre-COVID education are we going to be able to stand up? Well, so the big question um, everywhere, I, I know because I get the uh, emails from Stanford, you know, are we going to reopen in person in the fall? Uh, that's you know, number one question, and if so, how? Uh, are we really going to be at a stage where, you know, the, the, one of the models of American higher education is people fly all over the country, and then they fly back again. Uh, right. You know, is our country even going to be allowing unrestricted travel without uh, quarantines is a big question. So are we going to reopen in person in the fall uh, with residential stuff and somehow have enough protocols in place to do it? That's a huge question. Uh, for universities and colleges that are dependent on tuition, uh, that's a huge financial question. Uh, just how long are people going to want to pay Stanford's tuition even? Uh, the few who are actually paying full tuition in order to attend Zoom uh, classes uh, in the fall. Uh, Stanford, the, the elites don't really rely that much on tuition revenue, so it's not that much of a financial question, but it certainly does uh, ask the question what's going to go on. And, and uh, most of the tuition-dependent places, this is uh, a real question, which I say would mirror you know, the rest of the economy. Is the rest of the economy going to be able to reopen in the fall? And if not, who's going to pay the bills? Uh, that you know, The airlines got themselves a reprieve that lasts through about September. Uh, the chances of them flying the same schedules they were in February, I think, is pretty dim. Uh, so that, 
And then how is this going to shake out? It does, when, when we all go back to normal in three years, are we back to the same stuff? Or do finally uh, customers start to ask a little more what the value proposition is at their universities? Uh, that's the big question in all of American economy. Are we going to come just forget this all and go back to where we were? Or is there going to be some sort of shakeout? Is there, let us hope, going to be some learning of lessons so that the 2000 30 crisis. We don't all show up in hock having borrowed a ton of money and need the federal government to print $30 trillion of money. You've been listening to the Grumpy Economist podcast with John Cochran. You can read the Grumpy Economist blog at johnhcochran.blogspot.com. And if you enjoy the show, please rate it on iTunes, wherever you get your podcasts. For John Cochran, I'm Troy Sinek. Thanks for listening. This podcast has been a production of the Hoover Institution, where we advance ideas that define a free society. For more information about our work and to hear more of our podcasts or see our video content, please visit hoover.org.